Um, but this is going to be worth it, Don and Jackie. When I grow up, I want to be like Don. So I better hurry up. <laughs> but they just have uh, demonstrated over the oh, about probably five years. Have I known you five years? Um, just an incredible testimony of serving the Lord with their whole heart and, and, and just doing stuff that every time I'm with them, they're telling me stories. I mean, Don just got back from South Sudan. Okay, so while they were there, I was watching this TV show, The SEAL Team, uh, and they were going to South Sudan to, to rescue some missionaries or something. I was like, oh my goodness! <laughs> It is literally one of the most dangerous places on planet Earth. Um, and, um, and they tried to get me to go, and I was like, nope. <laughs> I'll go to Mexico. But um, just their passion, their dedication. I also love that for uh, how many years were you in the Livingston Church? Nineteen seventy-six joined a church and still is actively involved. Same church, okay. But yeah, and um, you know that's a testimony. And then God uh, has used them all over the world. It's not one or the other. It's not church or missions. And they are the living testimony of people that have served their local congregation with. While working full-time, Don was a veterinarian, uh, Jackie was a nurse, raising kids, and then, you know, eventually he sold his practice, and rather than retiring to the golf course, he retired to World Missions, and now is working even more for nothing. <laughs> so, but they just carry an anointing, and they're great teachers, but it's their, their, their love for the Lord, love for the church, and their giftedness that I have been looking forward to sharing them with uh, uh, our congregation. So would you give them a hand? They're going to tag team. Donna Jackie, come on up. Well, it's great to be with you this morning. We've been looking forward to this. Uh, we think so much of Cameron, and we finally got to meet Kathy. So I know she actually is a real person. I've only heard about her up till now. <laughs> But it, it's a joy to be with you. We were briefly in um, this area last October down at the Vandalia campus, and uh, it's just a joy to come and be here with you this weekend. So I'm going to turn this over to my wife, and we'll get started. Sure. Let's just pray together before we start. Thank you, Jesus. feel your presence even as we just began this morning. So thank you so much. Your presence has always been what has marked your people. And without that, we have nothing. We have nothing to offer except you. So we thank you. We ask you to bless us today with that glorious presence and beauty of who you are. Come to us in the, <clears throat> in the power and the presence of your glory. We welcome you. We lay our lives before you, new and fresh today, as a living sacrifice. Father, I thank you for loving us, and I thank you that there's always more. Wherever we are in our relationship to you, there's always more. 
And we ask you for the grace to just take us deeper into who you are and fill our hearts more and more with love. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, good morning. It's so good to be here, and uh, we just we cherish what Cameron brings to our schools, and it's so good to finally know my sister Kathy in person, and uh, so we're we're just so honored to have been uh, asked to come and share with you. Uh, I will tell you uh, that that Don and I teach very informally. Um, in fact, being up here, this is like new to me. But it's kind of a rush because I'm five foot nearly nothing anyway. So I feel like maybe now I'm, I'm just the right height. But you know what? In the kingdom, I am just the right height. And that's okay. And it's the same for you. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, what our purpose and our calling is this morning. And so Don and I are the directors of the Kaleo School of Missions and the Kaleo Leadership Schools. And we teach very informally. So we invite you to ask questions, and we will invite you to answer questions. So feel free. And uh, uh, I apologize. I tend to move quite a bit, um, and that's okay. Uh, but, uh, in fact, I may even move down here some. And in just a little bit, we're going to have a little visual. And uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, very first thing, the scripture that I'm going to read very briefly is from 1 Timothy 1. It's just one verse, so you don't necessarily have to turn there. It says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. And we'll, we'll come back to 1 Timothy in just a minute, but he talks about his purpose, to be filled with God's love and to, to bring that love to other people, right? So I want to ask you real quickly this morning, if uh, how many of you in here know what your calling is? What is your calling? Which, you raised your hand. What's your calling? To be filled with love, yeah. And to lead others into love. So who else knows what their calling is? Yes. Yes. What? Yeah. That's what we're called to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So God has a clear calling on the life of every one of his children. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So part of what we do in our schools is to help people discover the depth of what their calling is. And, and our purpose in the classes is, is to, uh, first of all, empower and equip and encourage. We encourage people to step into what it is that he has called them to do. We teach them a little bit more about some of the things they hadn't thought about what that calling might entail and how to do it. Very practical, hands-on way, ways to do things. And then we encourage, because if there's one thing this world needs, it's the hope that Jesus brings, okay? This is a world without hope, and people are, are dying without that hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. we got a lot of sick hearts in the world. 
and speaking from one who who has battled with some some of those things myself, um, that hope is so vitally important that if we can give hope to other people, if we can give encouragement, if we can if we can teach them how to better step into the plan that God has for their life. While they bring their plans, their hopes, their dreams to him, then that's just good. That's just good. And that's the way we like to do it. So I asked you, what is your calling? And a lot of people will say, oh, well, I'm, I'm called to be a teacher or I'm called to be a pastor or I'm called to be an evangelist or I'm called, I'm called, I'm called. Or what we find a lot of times is that people don't really know what their calling is and they're kind of looking and they're just saying, oh, if only I could. And they'll tell me what it is they wish they could. But what we have discovered, what I think all of you probably have discovered or I hope will discover, is that without that clear calling, you don't have any goals, right? Without clear goals, you can't have a plan. Without a plan, you settle for whatever it is comes your way. Did Jesus die on the cross for you to settle? No. So what is your what is your your calling? What is your calling? Now there's a difference between that that settling, okay, and that contentment that the scripture calls us to have. That contentment that comes from knowing what your calling is and stepping into it and being fully involved in God's plan for your life because his plan for your life is way better than what we can think right? His plan for our lives is always perfect because he is perfect. But if you can, if you can do that, if you can step into his plan, then you can be content regardless of the circumstances around you. And that's a great place to be. Okay. We, we have, uh, we were high school sweethearts. We were married in 1976. Uh, that's when, when I joined, uh, this church, he was there in high school. We stepped into that together. We've seen days where we had not two nickels to rub together. Okay. I quit college to put him through vet school and every third check that I made once, you know, I was paid once a month, went right back to the university and I wasn't making much money. So for the first 10 years of our lives, we, we were, we were kind of desperate on occasion and yet not desperate because it was fine. Uh, we were content and that's okay. The Lord has blessed us. We have an abundance now. We have uh, so much of an abundance that he has actually funded our ministry slash retirement for us, which is so sweet. We had no idea, but we're content in that. But I promise you, if we lost it all tomorrow, we know he would still make a way. And we're content in that. So when you, you know that you're grounded and rooted in his plan, in his calling for your life, then the circumstances around you are not going to upset the apple cart. Okay? We have a saying in our classes, blessed are the flexible, we don't get bent out of shape. Okay? And that's true physically, but it's even more true spiritually. If you can be flexible, if you can take the circumstance and say, Lord, what is it that you want me doing right here and right now? 
and step into his plan, that little detail of his plan for that moment, then you're content and it's good. And, and the Holy Spirit can flow. We, can't, we don't stop his hindrance. We don't hinder his, his move. When we're content, when we're sure, when we're settled, when we know deep, deep, deep down in our hearts that he's got this, and it's really, really good. So that's the difference between contentment and settling, and that, that settling for whatever it is life throws at us, and, and in our fallenness, that's what we, we seem to think faith is all about, is I'll just be content. This is just my lot in life. I'll just muddle through. That's not what he wants for us, okay? So what's his first calling? He has three major callings for every single one of us that are exactly the same, and it's in, in getting rooted and grounded in those three callings that we can then step into some of, the, some of the details of what his specific plan is for us. But what's the first calling? Any idea? To love God? Mm -hmm. And what do you do in response to loving God? Okay, okay. But usually, if you'll, if you'll think back to that first brilliant light moment where you realized God is real and he loves me and you step into that relationship, that's his first call. That's his first call, to give your life to him, to give your heart to him to give your mind to him, to give your, your plan to him, to give your everything to him. And that's what he calls each and every one of us because he doesn't want anybody to perish, right? He doesn't want anybody to perish. And so he calls us to him. How many of you have, have often thought of, oh, I was seeking after God with all of my heart and I finally found him? Do you think that's really, really true? He was seeking you first. And so his first calling is for you to step in and say, yes, Jesus, I want whatever it is that you have for my life. And when that is settled, then it becomes easy to find his second calling. And we've already said it is to love others, but it's to love them enough to draw them into relationship with you so that you can point the way so that they can find their first calling, okay? And you can do that no matter where in the world you are. It doesn't matter if you're in the grocery store or if you're at your next-door neighbor's house or if you're at your kid's school talking to the teacher because your kid wasn't exactly... Um, performing to the best of his or her ability, okay? I used to tell the, the teachers of my kids, I won't believe half of what my kids tell me about you if you won't believe half of what they tell, he, he tells you about me, okay? Pretty good there. Um, but no matter where you are, whether you're at home, whether you're at the store, whether you're halfway around the world, and, and we've had the joy of being halfway around the world many times, since we retired, and it's just good. But you know what? It's the same Holy Spirit no matter where we go. It's the same Holy Spirit, and it's the same hunger in people for more of Holy Spirit. No matter where you are, no matter what language is being spoken, no matter what the village looks like or the big city looks like in, 
we do most of our work in Reynosa. Reynosa is a big, dirty, dusty, not-so-pleasant city. But the people there have such a hunger, and they love Jesus. They love Jesus so much, the people that we work with, that it's just it's a joy to be there. So that's your second calling, drawing others into relationship to him. What is your third calling? Your third calling. This is the one that most of us don't often step fully into, but I'm inviting you to step fully into. That third calling is to know him more, to love him more, to give him more so that he can work what he needs to in you, but even more so that he can work what he needs to through you. Okay, but you've got to be in a place of full surrender in order for him to do that. And this is also part of what we what we teach, what we live, what we try to encourage others to step into, because when you are hungry for God's word, for his presence, for his will to be done on earth, what is his will? What is his will? Come on, I've already said it. That everyone be saved. What? That none should perish. How many of you have hearts that are broken for what breaks his? What breaks his heart? When someone needs him desperately and can't seem to find him, either because they have a wall up or because nobody has gone to them. But woe unto us if it's because nobody has gone to them and we've had that opportunity. Now, don't take that as condemnation, okay? Because we're all human. We're all in process. We are not called to do our lives perfectly. We are called to have our lives perfected. It's a process. So don't get down on yourself. Don't, don't hear words of condemnation in what I'm saying. We all make mistakes. Do your kids make mistakes as, as you're raising them up? Of course they do. Do you stop loving them because they made a mistake? No, neither does he. Neither does he. But if we can understand and fully embrace that call, that call to bring his love to the people out there that are hopeless, that are hurting, they can't imagine anybody loving them, much less a God, or who have the misunderstanding that anything can be God. You know, you see what I'm saying? But you have all the tools that you need. It's all in Scripture. You have eyes to, to see, ears to hear. Ask the Lord to show you other people through his eyes to hear other people with his ears. And he, I promise, will present to you opportunities to share in one way or another, even if it's just, how are you doing today? I really care about you. Would you like to come over? We'll have a cup of coffee. You know, I do uh, a lot of uh, counseling. We've, we've been lay counselors uh, and lay ministers for 30-plus years we were filled with the Spirit in 1983, and he hasn't had a stop since. And I love that. Um, 
But when we started that out, it was just people just, they would come literally knock on our door and say, I don't know why I'm here, but if you don't pray for me or don't, can't help me, I don't know what else I'm going to do. And they would be so heartbroken and in such need. And our immediate response was, Lord, you got to help me with this because I don't know what I'm doing. Okay. But since then, I've gone back and I've gotten a, a degree in Christian counseling. And I can tell you the best thing that you can do for somebody who's hurting is to listen while they talk and to listen to Holy Spirit so that you'll know the right question to ask at the right time because that's what counseling is all about. Is that something that it takes only those who are qualified to do that to do it? Guess what? You're qualified. Each and every one of you, you're qualified. But going back to this, you have to have that settled in your heart. Okay? And so how do we do that? And that's what we're here to talk to you about today. How do we do that? How do we press into knowing him more, loving him more? We have come to see and understand that a part of that um, is, is a restlessness. And we have lots of our students who come to us and they say, I, just, I know there's more. I just don't know what it is. I don't know. I don't understand. What is he calling me to? What does he want me to do with this? I, I, I just, I know there's more. Well, we have come to understand that this is a holy restlessness. Okay. And it's given to us to spur us on into deeper depths with him, to read his word more, to, to linger in prayer longer, you know, to reach out, to have that uh, boldness to step outside your comfort zone. Okay, and I got to tell you, I'm a huge introvert, and people think it. Yes, yes. Introverts unite. Actually, there are more introverts than there are extroverts in the world, but because they're louder, we always think that they are more of them than they are of us. So I say that to say this is definitely outside of my comfort zone. But you know what? So was the cross outside of his. So I'm going to step outside of that comfort zone anytime he calls me to because I want to be in the very center of his will because that's the best place ever, ever, ever to be. Okay? When you have this holy restlessness, it brings you deeper into all three of those callings. When you are deeper into all three of those callings, then the details of what you do with that calling become simply, what is it you want me to do today, Lord? And it may be big things. It may be little things. It doesn't matter. It's about obedience. Obedience. Whatever it is he's calling you to. Step into it with your whole heart. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And he will never leave you feeling stuck. How many of you have ever felt stuck? Yeah. All of us, if we're truthful, have at times felt stuck. But you know what? Even, even that's okay if we'll open up and recognize I'm stuck and come to somebody who's a little farther down the road than you are, and say, would you pray for me? Because that keeps our hearts in balance, too. When that restlessness drives, him to, uh, drives us to him so much 
that we are so yielded that we say, whatever it is that you want, you change what you need to change, you heal whatever you need to heal, you break whatever needs to be broken. Sometimes we need fear broken. Sometimes we need judgments broken, judgments against ourselves, judgments against other people. Sometimes that, that fear can paralyze us. But you know what is said as much as anything else in Scripture is fear not? Fear not. Over 300 and how many times? Over 400 times in the Bible. But do you know what is said just as often as fear not? Rejoice. Rejoice. Why do you suppose he does that? So that it can be counterbalanced. Okay? The fear we can use that energy from the fear to drive us closer to him too. And that's a good place to be, actually. You know what the definition of courage is? That's my favorite. You do it afraid. You do it afraid. And so that's a good one. When those things become so settled in your heart, then the details of what he's asking you to become clear and change to those details doesn't threaten you it doesn't threaten you if you if you come up on a situation and you see oh i need to adjust i need to change i need to be flexible it's okay because you know you're walking in his will and he will lead you through that so one of the things that people often have hold them back and i want you to ask yourself these same questions okay you're persevering in prayer about something you're trying to find out what his, what his will is, what your next step is, then I want you to ask yourself, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? That's a quote from Dr. Dale Tackett on the Truth Project. We did that a few years ago with a, a, our small group, our life group at home, and he said, I have a question that's haunted me, and I'm going to haunt you with it, and he's right. He has haunted me with that. But it's such a good question. I don't mind being haunted. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Okay. So you ask yourself, do you really believe when you are in prayer that Jesus can? Now, we've, we've all seen the scripture. Whatsoever you ask of the Father in my name, he will do. So what is left out of that statement? What is left out of that statement? Absolutely nothing. The only thing that he cannot do is make up your mind for you. Okay? Let me say that again. The only thing he cannot do is make up your mind for you. So if we have that question settled, and, and if you've walked with the Lord for very long, you probably have that question settled. Do you really believe that Jesus can? Is there anything he cannot do? If you really believe that Jesus can, do you believe that Jesus wants to? That he loves you enough that he wants to reach out in his magnificence, in his holiness, in his omnipotence, in, in every capacity that he is, that he wants to help you. Does he want to help you? He wants to help you. But you'd be amazed at how many people think, oh, well, 
He wants to help Kathy. He wants to help Kathy, but I'm not sure he wants to help me. Okay? And we do that comparison thing. And, you know, I've learned that's a trap. That comparison thing is such a trap. So do you believe that Jesus wants to for you, yourself? Because a yes or a no makes a big difference in how he answers that prayer. If you believe that he wants to, do you believe that he will? And again, he will for Don. He will for Don. I'm not sure he will for me. That's another trap. It's another trap that the enemy brings to us. Why? Why does, he, why does the enemy do that to us? What's his purpose? To steal, kill, and destroy. He wants you stuck. Can't move to the left. I can't move to the right. And pretty soon I feel like I can't even breathe. That's where he wants you to be. That's not why Jesus died. It's so that you're left there stuck. It's not. I can remember many, many years ago, and uh, I, I've already said I, I've struggled with things in my life. Okay? Struggled with a, a, a not-so-healthy family dynamic growing up. My, my dad did the best that he could, so please do not hear this as condemnation. Okay? He was a World War II vet who suffered from PTSD long before PTSD was a thing. It drove him to alcohol. And my, I never saw my dad drunk. Never one time did I see him drunk. But you could tell when he hadn't had his drink. Okay. That's a common misconception. And, and Kathy, you can back me up as a nurse. You don't have to be drunk all the time to be an alcoholic. Your body becomes dependent on that. And so your happy place is when you've had your little shot or whatever it is that you're drinking. So he would go from being this really great guy and, and full of joy and fun to be around to getting a little bit quiet, and then something would turn the tide, and he would be so angry. And you'd want to run and hide. And so that's, that's what I grew up in. When I was 14, uh, I had an older cousin who decided that his younger cousin was looking pretty good. That was started two months after I accepted Jesus as my Lord. You think that wasn't the Satan's plan? Of course it was. So by the age of 21, I was so deep in depression that I decided I was not going to be 22. And I had my plan in place. I knew what I was going to do, how I was going to do it, when I was going to do it. And I cried out to Jesus, who came to find me when I was almost 14, and I said, I know you did not die on that cross so that I would just exist. So that I would just survive. Because many of us live with the attitude of, I'll just survive this life. I'll survive my Christianity and whatever comes my way is just my lot in life. Until I can go home to be with Jesus and be in heaven and everything will be great 
Well, there's some truth to that, but guess when heaven starts for you? Your citizenship in heaven begins the day you accept Jesus as your Savior. So why aren't you living in heaven now? doesn't mean that bad things won't happen. It means that you're not alone in the bad things. And, and you know what? He sent me help the very next day because I recognized that I was stuck. And that if he didn't help me, and that's what I cried to him, if you don't help me, I can't live like this. And I didn't have to. And we've seen, we've seen lots of people come through, uh, come through our schools and uh, miraculous stories. We had uh, uh, one of our students at this last mission school, sweet young lady. Um, she was married. She had a kid. Her kid came to class every day. He was 14, 10. Okay. We have lots of kids come in, and, and the Mexican kids especially, they know how to sit and listen. And they'll take notes, and they'll participate in class. They're always very quiet. They're always very well-behaved. Uh, but they are fully there. And this sweet lady, every time we would have a worship session, we, we would start our day <coughs> excuse me, with, with an hour of worship, okay, Every day, every class day, an hour of worship, we'd go into class. Every worship set, every after most of the classes, we have ministry time. Every ministry time, she would scream. She would burst into tears. She would laugh hysterically, or she'd be writhing on the floor. And we recognized quickly that, that this young lady was being set free of some things. We didn't know what, uh, but she was being set free. A little bit by a little bit by a little bit. And so we, we didn't interfere, okay? We just prayed with her and for her and over her. Uh, at one point, I went and put my hand on her shoulder, and she launched herself supernaturally back across the back of the chair and almost knocked me down and did knock the, the guy who caught her, okay? This is real stuff. So about three weeks into class, she raised her hand. She's a very, very soft-spoken young lady. She said through the translator, I have a question. We said, what is it? Don, one of us was teaching. I don't remember. Um, I have a question. I don't hear the voices anymore. Is that okay? And she told us she'd been hearing voices for as long as she could remember. And and that night, for the first time, she'd slept all night without hearing a voice. And the change in her was so drastic. Her husband is coming to this next leadership school. The small church that they host in their home, which basically is the concrete pad out in front of their home, is one of our churches. It's blooming. I mean, it's growing exponentially. Her father, whom she cares for in the home, who is a, a, how shall I describe him? He's a crusty old man. He's in a wheelchair. He doesn't feel good. He's in pain. He's hard to be around. Even he commented how much she had changed while she was at the school. And now he's changing. And it's so good. Is so good. 
we had a, a young lady, uh, one of the first leadership schools that we had, a young lady from Honduras. Her name is Maria. And she came to me and she said, um, and she, she was bilingual, so I could speak to her in English. She said, it was on a Friday, I'm having a hard time sleeping. Could you pray for me? I said, sure, absolutely, because we offer counseling to any of our students who want it through translator or English, depending on whatever it is that we need to do. We make time to offer every student who wants it at least one counseling session, and some of them we have multiple counseling sessions. But she said, I really want to talk to you. And I said, well, I, I'm not going to have time today. This is Friday. Uh, you've got outreach tomorrow. That's my Sabbath day, and we've already got things planned for that, and we're going to be very busy on Sunday. How about if we meet during the worship time, first thing Monday morning? She said, sure, sure, that'd be great. So I didn't think much more about it, but I spent the weekend, of course, every time I thought of her, I prayed for her. And she came in that morning, and she said, um, I, I really don't understand why I can't sleep. I said, how long have you not been able to sleep? I said, I can't remember the last time I had a good night's sleep. Uh, I, I have nightmares, and, and I wake up, and, and I'm, I'm afraid that I'm going to wake up screaming is where she was going with that. And I said, okay, let's pray about this. And we, we just got still for just a minute. And the Holy Spirit prompted me to ask her, so what's your earliest memory? What's your earliest memory? Now, remember the testimony that I gave you about my life just a few minutes ago. So my earliest memory was when I was four. This was when I, this all started, when uh, an older family member had done something unspeakable to this little four-year-old girl. And so we prayed, and I asked Jesus, please, to show her where he was while this was, and she had a vision, she went back to that place, not terrified, because Jesus was right there with her, and that thing broke in her, and she rejected it, and she slept like a baby from that point on, three minutes of deliverance, I've never seen somebody delivered of something, set free, restored in three minutes, and I said, what, what did you do since we talked on Friday? She said, oh, I fasted and prayed. She was hungry. She was desperate. She'd had night terrors since that night. She never had night terrors from that time. And we still keep in touch with her. She's so set free from that, that her father in Honduras, who is in the import-export business, sends us coffee beans so that the people in the mountains of Tennessee can package those coffee beans and sell it as a business. And he doesn't charge us anything except what it cost him to buy the coffee beans because he saw such a change in her. So God doesn't want us to be stuck. So how is it that we keep from being stuck? How do you keep from being stuck? What do you do if you feel like you're stuck? Anybody. Pray, okay. What else do you do? Sing counsel. Mm -hmm. What else do we do? Journal. Those are great things. What else? 
See, we can learn from each other. So what you say may not seem that important to you, but it may be very important to somebody else. What else do you do? The written scripture, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's clear when we'll open up our minds and get past our own opinions and read it for what it is. <laughs> absolutely. So I'm, I'm going to do a little visual demonstration, and I'm going to borrow my husband real quick. And we're going to need a chair. And I'm going to invite you all to come and see this visual demonstration because I'm a visual learner. And so for me, if I can see somebody illustrate what it is they're trying to say, I keep it. I keep it. And Kathy, I'm going to call on you. And we're going to let Papa Don be God. And Kathy is stuck. And she's a brand new Christian and she's not sure which way to go. Kathy, this is your life right here, okay? Now, you all know out of his belly flow rivers of living water, right? So he's going to start to pour a little bit. She's a brand-new Christian, so she goes and gets some of this water, and it's so good. It's so good, but she's so excited. She starts giving it to other people around here, and, and pretty soon what happens? She's stuck again. So she goes back, and she gets some more, and she brings it out. But she's stuck again. But this time, this time, because the rivers flow, this time she's going to stay. Turn it up. Turn it up. Turn it up like this. So now what happens? Now she's still giving to other people, but it's out of the overflow. So if you stay in his word, if you journal, if you stay in prayer, if you seek counsel, if you do all of these things, she's not stuck anymore. And she can move up and down. It doesn't matter. See, God never moves, but we move. And if she gets off track a little bit, what can her husband do? Come and <laughs> gently move her back to God. Or any of you. Or any of you, yes. This is what we do for each other, okay? You see how good that is? And then these people down here, pretty soon they're going to be working out of the overflow as well. So, yeah. 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 But then they can also come and fill out of the overflow. See? And it can go and go and go and go. So thank you very much. Okay. And I'm sorry I got your chair just a little bit wet, but it'll dry. It'll dry. <laughs> so do you have any thoughts or questions? Can you think of a time in your life where you or somebody that you love got stuck? And you help them out of the overflow. Can you think of that? Can you share? Because what happens when we share with other people? I shared with you a little bit of my journey. When we share our journey with other people, they feel heard, they feel understood, they feel encouraged. 
and it not only helps them to heal, it helps you to heal. I used to be so shy about opening my mouth, and I would never, ever tell somebody that I suffered from depression because I was raised in the belief that you don't share that kind of thing, okay? That was the culture I was raised in. That was the culture my parents were raised in. I'm not blaming them. They were doing the best they could do. But it was a shame to the family if you opened your mouth. Do you know how many times people have come to me and said, I'm just down and I don't know what to do, and I really feel like something's got to change or something bad is going to happen? That's happened to me again and again and again. And I can look at them with all the love in my heart and say, I've been where you've been. I know your pain. Let's take it to the one who can heal you of that pain. See, he's the healer. I'm not. And I've got that settled. And that's my fourth calling. Okay? And it's it's not as important as that first, second, third calling, but it is important. It's just the one that shows but those first three, those first three callings need to be in place. And so when, when somebody comes to me, and, and I, for a long time when I walked in a room, I could tell when somebody was suffering from depression. It's not so much anymore. And I don't know whether that's because I'm healed or, or other people uh, are not suffering as much. I don't really buy that, but... It's good when we share. So can you think of a time when you've been stuck and you've been able to to help somebody else? And let's give God the glory. Because that's that's the whole purpose of it, right? That's the whole purpose of it. Do you remember when Paul was talking to Timothy a little later in that same chapter? And Timothy was his spiritual mentor. Okay? Okay. And he was trying to uh, spread the gospel to everyone. But especially, you know, in his early days, he, he would persecute, he would kill those who believed in Jesus. But if you read the, the epistles of Paul, he went from being a sinner to being a great sinner to, in this passage, being the worst sinner of all. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of all. Ever feel like that? I often feel like I'm the worst sinner of all. You know what? That's a great place to be. If you feel that way, don't put yourself down. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life and all honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. So that's part of our purpose too, to bring glory to his kingdom, to bring honor to his name, and to reach out and help other people realize that he's calling he's calling so if you're feeling stuck if you're feeling swamped if you're feeling overwhelmed there's a way out there's a way out and that's part of what we're going to be talking about so i'm going to have don come up
and he's going to share with you for a little while. And thank you all so much. You want to stand up and stretch real quick? Yeah, do that.
I don't accidentally knock it over. All right, here we can. We'll come back together and get get started. That question that that Jackie referenced um, that we we sort of stole and started using many years ago, I think is really really important to ponder upon for a bit. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Um, especially when you grow up like I did in the in the Bible Belt of the South. Like everybody's a Christian. Everybody knows Jesus. Even today, you can go out and knock on doors, which we do frequently. And uh, 99% of the people will say, oh yeah, I, I, I know Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, you'll, you'll meet the occasional who doesn't identify that way. But their lifestyles certainly don't don't stack up with with that statement, with that proclamation, for the most part. And so, biblically, belief cannot be separated from action. It can't be. If you if you really study even the meaning of those words in Hebrew and Greek, both belief implies action. And if you're not acting upon what you say you believe, then you don't believe. That's the biblical standpoint. Okay. And so, do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do you really believe that there's nothing in you that sin is broken that Jesus cannot fix? If you do, you'll never settle for the brokenness that you recognize. You'll always keep digging, keep searching, keep, keep, keep passionate about letting Jesus heal that. And, and it's a struggle. There are many hurts that go deeply into our hearts. And there are many, many hurts that require a process for complete healing and deliverance. But if you really believe that there's nothing in you broken by sin that Jesus cannot heal, then you will not settle for less than wholeness, which is actually kind of the meaning of the, I know you've heard of like sozo, and that, that's one of the words used in the New Testament for healing. It really means wholeness, full restoration, right? That's kind of the, the promise of the gospel. It's not just a physical healing, or it's not just a uh, putting a Band-Aid on, on wounds of the heart that allow you to, to uh, exist, but it is a restoration to complete wholeness. Do you really believe that the gospel is not about finding your best life now, but it's about finding life? Okay. Because everything outside the gospel is some version of death. Okay. You see, the, the message of Christianity is radical. And it always has been. It was intended to be. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Now, this is the Prince of Peace. Okay? So you've got to understand it in the context of what he was saying. He, but he, he was saying that there'll be a, what I bring, the message that I bring will end up dividing families. It'll divide one family member from another, one friend from another. The, the gospel was intended to stand apart from everything else in the world. The gospel is not there to find a way for the gospel to be culturally relevant. It is there to challenge the cultures that are ungodly. Okay? And much of the Western church has fallen into this trap. Oh, we've got to find a way to get people in the seats, so we've got to, find a, we've got to compromise to become culturally relevant so people will listen. That's, that's a death nail for the church. To find a way to speak to each generation with new songs, with new music, that's 
true. That's good. The history of the church has proven that. Every great move of God has been accompanied by new songs, by new, by new words brought into the Christian lingo. That's all good. Finding a way to connect, but never, ever, ever compromising the culture of heaven to do that. The gospel is intended and is only effective when it stands apart, not when it gets blended in. You see, there are many gods in this world, many gods in this world. But there's only one true God. There's only one God of God, Lord of Lord, King of Kings. Only one who is true. If we really believe that, it changes the way you live. Do you really believe that this life is a proving ground for the next? If you do, it changes the way you live. Do you really believe that you've only got one life in which to prove to the devil how much you love Jesus? If you do, you're going to devote yourself to living a lifestyle. Because, you you know, the the Bible says that the powers of darkness are watching the church to to seek and to understand the manifold wisdom of God. Did you know that everything about being a Christian is supernatural? Everything about being a Christian is supernatural. Sometimes folks in in the South have a hard time with that statement. Okay growing up in the Bible Belt, where Christianity in in many institutional churches has just been so tamed down that it's lost its power. And it's just become another kind of philosophy of life. The gospel is not just a philosophy of life. It's not just finding certain truths that you try to live by. The gospel is the power of salvation. And everything else is some version of death. Everything about being a Christian is supernatural. Let me, let me take two minutes and prove it to you, okay? Just in case you doubt. These statements that I'm going to make are pretty universally accepted among all evangelical Christians. If you disagree, you can tell me. We believe in an invisible creator who somehow spoke everything that's material into existence. True? We believe that somehow that that invisible creator stepped into this world as a baby conceived in the womb of a virgin. We believe that that child was born, that he was raised up, uh, lived a sinless life, that his message was confirmed through miracles, signs, and wonders, that he died a death like no one had ever died, that three days later he was resurrected from the grave into a glorified immortal body, no longer subject to the same physical laws. We believe that that a few days after that he poured out an invisible spirit into the hearts of people who would confess him as Lord, and that that would transform them into new creatures. Not just change the way they think, but they become substantially different than they were before. And we believe that somehow that that man who ascended into heaven in a glorified body is coming back to establish an eternal reign of righteousness. Okay? Is that basic evangelical Christianity? What part of that is not supernatural? So when we try to tame down Western Christianity and take out the supernatural and make it a philosophy of life, all you can do is argue with people. 
And the Bible says don't do that. <laughs> don't engage in those meaningless discussions. Because the gospel does not need to be defended. It just needs to be practiced. Okay? It will defend itself. It is not my job to defend the gospel. It is my job to live it. And it's your job to live it. I want to share with you a couple of videos. Um, one month ago, uh, today, one month ago, I was in South Sudan. It was my first opportunity to go to South Sudan. It, uh, I'll give you a little bit of background. We, uh, part of Kaleo and part of what we personally have gotten to do over the last few years is to start and walk through an accreditation process in Kenya of a, of a Bible institute in a small village in western Kenya which, praise the Lord, is now fully accredited and the degrees we offer are recognized by the Kenyan government. That's a huge deal there. Uh, Kenya, Kenya greatly values education. Uh, they're still in a rebuilding from finding their independence like 50 years ago. You know? And so uh, they greatly value education. And so it is a huge deal for someone to be able to go and get an, an accredited degree. It opens up so many doors for them. It doesn't much matter what that degree is in. It just opens up doors for them and opportunities. So, but our purpose is to target people from unreached, unengaged, or lesser-reached people groups, bring them there that have a heart for Christ, bring them there for training, and then launch them back to plant churches and groups to take the gospel back. And as we, we're, we're in the fourth year now, Third year, this year we'll be graduating the third year once we got our, uh, a provisional accreditation, which is now full accreditation. And God has blessed us with bringing students there from many un, uh, or several unreached tribes and many lesser reached groups of people. And one of those young men who, I call him young, he's 37 years old. To me, that's young. It's the age of my middle son, so it's, he's young. But he had been a captain in the South Sudanese Liberation Army during their civil war. If you're not familiar with South Sudan, it's one of the newest nations in the world. They only got their official status in 2011. They have basically been in one type of war or another for more than the last 20 years. Uh, they still are in the midst of intertribal civil wars within South Sudan. As Cameron said, it's listed as one of the most dangerous places on the planet to be. Um, but he was a captain in the South Sudanese Liberation Army. He came, he had met Jesus, and he came to the Bible Institute because he, he had a hunger to grow, but he was angry. You can imagine. All he had grown up in civil war. That's all he had ever known. He had seen so much death and killing. He had lost so many family members to the wars and in the refugee camps. He came to us from a refugee camp. If you ask the South Sudanese how many of them lost family members in the war and you're in a group of 100, every hand will go up. If you ask them how many of you have lost family members due to starvation in the refugee camps, about half the hands will go up. Okay? Um, it's a tough life. But his name is Peter Joaquin, and he came, and the first year he was just very angry. But I got to spend a lot of time with him this in the last month, and he was telling me his whole story. He, he went back at, to his tribe, which was unreached, called the Como tribe, in a very, very remote area of South Sudan called the Dajapost area. Eight tribes of Como in that area, eight villages of Como tribe in that area. 
And he started a small church among them, he, even though in his heart he still had a lot of anger and bitterness. And then he, after the break, he came back for his second year. And Jesus really got hold of him the second year and transformed his heart and took all the bitterness away. And he forgave everybody. And you can see it in him when you talk to him. He's just the gentlest soul in the world. Well, it does, hardship means nothing to him. You can say, well, you know, this, what would you think about going here and, and, and doing this? And he said, oh, no problem. Well, how would your family live? Oh, it's no problem. I mean, this is just his mindset. And so we were going back to South Sudan to support what he had started. And he is living with his family in an internally displaced people camp. We would call it a refugee camp, but it's people, it's South Sudanese who have been displaced by the war, so they're living in camps for protection, okay, and for provision. So he, had, he went back, he started a church among the Como tribe village in this internally displaced people camp of Maban. This place is destitute. It's one of the poorest places, maybe the poorest place I've ever been, and I've been in some very remote and poor places. Everybody, they've been there since 2013. That's when the camps were established, so for about 10 years. Most everyone lives in mud homes with dirt, dirt floors. Families of four to eight living in a, a 10 by 10 house, one room, with an outside little lean-to where they cook. Okay, Small gardens, small herds of goats, some chickens running around, and lots of relief poured in by the United Nations and every other relief organization you can think of. But after pouring billions and billions and billions of dollars, the United States alone has poured in about $8 billion into this region over the last eight years, not to mention what else is going on in the rest of the world. After all those billions of dollars being poured in to this area over the last eight to ten years, people still live in abject poverty. Most everyone there, we talked, we had lots of meetings while we were there with the leaders of this tribe and the council of that tribe and, and just going from village to village. Everyone there, almost to a person, is angry and bitter and has an agenda because they're living on the edge of existence. And so they're always vying for resources. There's, jealousy is tremendous. It's a very, very toxic and tough environment. I don't blame them. They, most all of them have ever known is war. Okay? So that's kind of the background for this. And if, the, if that first video could be queued up, this is what we found at the church that Peter Joaquin has helped establish among this unreached, previously unreached people group in this destitute IDP camp of South Sudan.
that beautiful? That was Peter Joaquin leading them in worship. And what they're singing roughly is in English is this. When I was living in my sins, it hurt my heart very bad. But then I met Jesus, and he came, and he took my sins away, and he took the hurt out of my heart. And so this is why I'm happy, and this is why I sing. When I go deeper into his word, that's where I find him more, and that's why I praise him. You think the gospel's not powerful? In the darkest places, that's the power of the gospel. And it's hard to appreciate unless you're there and you've been meeting all these other people. And you see, even people who would claim to be Christian, because there's been quite a bit, like uh, Sending in Missions has some mission base there. They do a great organization doing a great job. There's been a lot of Christian presence there. Okay? But even the ones who would claim Christ to be Christian are still living in their bitterness and their hurt. But it is the presence of Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit, that brings life. And you can see it in these people, even meeting with them in their homes. They're joyful. They're sharing. They're giving. They're, they're, there's not that underlying current of agenda, of hidden agendas. And the power of the gospel is real. to set people free. That's what Jesus said he came to do. Right? Preach the gospel to the poor. The recovering of sight to the blind. Set the captives free. And it works. And it works here, just like it does there. How many people in this community, how many people in this country are living in captivity? They're not having to live in an IDP camp, but in some ways they're more captive than these people are. Okay? They're held captive by sin. They're held captive by traditions. They're held captive by cultural opinion and appropriation by so many things that are not the gospel. And as I said earlier, everything outside the gospel is some version of death. It's a radical statement, but it's intended to be. Do we really believe it? If we do, it changes the way you live, and it changes your understanding of your calling. As Jackie was talking about, your first calling is to know Jesus. Your second is to help other people know Jesus. And your third, like Paul said near the end of his life, it's just counting everything else rubbish, leaving it all behind to search for and go after the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Okay. If Paul needed that near the end of his life, I'm pretty sure I need it more. <laughs> okay. So I, I want us to go to a passage here, a very familiar passage to you in Matthew 16. And start reading in verse 13. When Jesus came into the re region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they say, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I, I know you're familiar with that passage. It's, it's very often quoted, uh, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, binding and loosing in heaven, the principle upon which the gospel is built and expands. 
but you, you may not be aware of some of the backstory. And I, I want to give you a little bit of that today because it shows just how intentional Jesus was about making sure his disciples understood how radical his message was. Okay? Have, have you ever been, have any of you visited in Israel, gone to Caesarea Philippi? Okay. Anyone else? Okay. Then maybe this, some of this will be new to you. Caesarea Philippi was in the northern regions of the land of Canaan. Okay? Up in the, in the area that was occupied by the tribe of Dan. So the northern region. Within the confines of, of that area of Caesarea Philippi, there was Mount Hermon. Okay. The area, the greater area, historically had been known as the, the land of Bashan. Okay. Caesarea Philippi had become a center of pagan worship. In the day of Jesus, when his disciples were there with him, there were at least 14 shrines and temples to pagan gods. Many of them would have surely been within sight of where they were sitting when he asked this question. Okay. When did he ask this question? It was toward the end of his ministry as they were getting ready to go for the last time back to Jerusalem where he was going to be crucified. Okay. At the beginning of his ministry, he started it out by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? At the end of his ministry... He's doubling down with his disciples so that they understand. Who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And he picked the context and the geography of where he asked that question very intentionally. In this site of pagan worship, surrounded by shrines of pagan gods, sitting most likely at the mouth of a bottomless pit cave, which was considered to be the gates of hell within that culture, where the Fertility gods and goddesses would go hide in the wintertime and then they would have to be seduced out in the springtime by the local pagan cultures and belief for uh, abundant crops the next year. And this was accompanied by lots of sexual perversion and prostitution, religious prostitution and other things within those cultures. Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi sits at the base of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon was a stronghold of the giants. Og, king of Bashan, okay, who was one of the giants conquered by Moses in the Transjordan area during the Exodus. Mount Hermon, this gets a little bit weird, so hang with me for a couple minutes. In the tradition of the Ugarit, the, the ancient traditions of that area, and according to Genesis 6, the understanding was this, that it was out Mount, Mount Hermon where some of the fallen angels came to the earth and consorted with human women and gave birth to the giants, the Nephilim. So it was the point at which in the, in the cultural understanding, the, the rebellion of heaven, the angelic rebellion, had invaded to the earth and perverted all of mankind with the exception of Noah and his family. And it required the destruction of the world by the flood to cleanse the earth of that perversion. That's what Caesarea Philippi represented. That's where Jesus took his disciples to ask them this question. Okay. Do you understand, he's saying, who do you say that I am? Sitting here amongst the center point of worship 
of ungodly perversion, of the sight of, of the, the perversion of the angelic rebellion invading the earth and, and, and distorting all of mankind. Who do you say that I am? You see how big this revelation is? No, you are the Christ. That's right. You're the anointed. You're the one sent by the one true God. You are Yahweh in flesh. Yes. And upon that understanding, I give to you the keys to the kingdom. And so he established from that point on a principle that the kingdom of heaven was an offensive mode, not a defensive mode. The kingdom of heaven was never intended to sit behind doors and wish the world would go away or to be afraid of an invasion. We are supposed to be the ones doing the invading. The world is under the powers of darkness. There is, there is a, a scattering of nations at the Tower of Babel, not too long after the flood in human history. And all of the world was put under the control of fallen and dark powers. God chose one man, his descendants, and then later through that one man being Abraham, and his spiritual children, who we are, okay, to go and reclaim all those who are trapped in the darkness of the world. That's the mission of the church. That's what Jesus was telling these people here, his disciples. Look at all this. This is the gate of hell. This is, this is what brought on the, this, this terrible fall and perversion. Yes, we had Eden that entered sin into the world, and death, sin came through that, death came through that. But then that opened up the gates that allowed this greater perversion and all of the, the pagan worship that holds the world captive. Okay? I don't care what you call it. You understand pagan worship takes on many names. And they're not all Ashtoreth and, and Zeus and Jupiter, and that was names of religions past. Yeah. But today there are many, many pagan religions, some even, even claiming to be Christian. Paul wrote about that. James wrote about that. Peter wrote about that. John wrote about that. That there would be wolves in sheep's clothing. This message is not about looking and trying to decide who's doing it right or wrong. This message is about understanding our calling. We are on the offensive. We have weapons that are real. Our greatest weapon is the presence, the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is a power that can fix everything in you that needs to be fixed which is what Jackie was talking about. And it's a power that will flow through you to take this message of love and truth and salvation to the people who are trapped in darkness. You are not responsible for how other people respond. You are responsible to take the message. And anything short of that is a misunderstanding of what it means to be a Christian. Okay? It doesn't matter where you're called to take that message. I'm not saying everyone needs to travel the world. 
because God needs and desires his people to be in all walks of life within their cultures, within their communities, taking this message. If it's in the workplace or the schools or the churches or the neighborhoods or the marketplaces, the businesses. But as we go, we must take the message if we really believe that what we believe is really true. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And this, this power of the gospel is amazing. When you, the more you experience it, the more beautiful it becomes. And the more unbelievable on one, and like, I, I, I kind of wish I could wind the clock back and you could have known me when I was like in my 20s. Skeptical, doubting, um, I gave my life to Jesus when I was nine years old, and I meant it. But I was also very skeptically minded, a linear thinker, analytical, you know, so you kind of had to prove it to me for it to be real kind of thing. And after being filled with the Holy Spirit out of a very broken time in our life, I started crying out to God, there's got to be something more. If, it's, if there's not something more than what I've known of being a Christian, I was 25 years old. There's not something more than what I've known of being a Christian. It's not worth it. It takes too much time, energy, and effort if this is all there is. And so I, but I told God, I said, if there is something more, I, I want you to show me. You've got to show me. If they're not, I'm just going to forget the whole thing. Okay? And I'm in it. I mean, I was, I was at that place of brokenness. But after Jackie and her, we had one son at the time, they went to bed that night after I'd had that kind of breakdown. And I sat down in my old fake leather recliner. <laughs> and I got out, it's not this same book, but the Bible, the same Bible, just a different book. That one was worn out and the cover's gone. <laughs> and I opened up to the Gospel of John. And I started reading. Now, I'd read the Bible off and on since I was a, a child. I was raised in church. But I really started reading it. And I read through John and I flipped over to Acts, and I read through Acts, and I just kept reading. And about five in the morning, I finished up at Jude. Didn't tackle Revelation. <laughs> but I felt that first night God was answering my cry. Okay. See, the only way I knew how to learn anything at that time was to read. I mean, that's how I'd learned everything. Read and study. And... But I was just reading. I was a fast reader. I'd gone through you know, veterinary medical school and where you'd read hundreds of pages of medical text every night. And so I'd learned to read quickly and absorb things quickly. The next night, I worked all day, came home that night. They went to bed. I sat down. I opened up to the book of Luke. I read the Gospel of Luke. I turned over to the book of Acts, and I kept reading. About 5 in the morning, I finished up at Jude. Went to bed for a couple of hours, got up, went to work all day, came home the next night, opened up to the book of Matthew. Same thing. This was a supernatural season in my life. I could not, there's no way I could do this on my own. That season in my life lasted for almost 10 months. Every night, all night long, reading, the, I read most of the New Testament every night for 9 to 10 months. I'd sleep about two hours a night. I'd work all day and do the same thing the next night. That's not my strength. It was a supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not saying you have to do that. That's just how God dealt with me because I was so stubborn. 
I had to be convinced. Okay? But at the end of that time, he filled me with his Holy Spirit. And I felt the love of God come into my life. I was sitting alone in a chapel at night. There was a wooden cross up on the wall. And I was just praying to God because I knew he was changing me through his word. And all of a sudden, I felt that power of the Holy Spirit. I didn't even know what to call it. I wasn't raised in a Pentecostal or even charismatic church. Very traditional. Orthodox. We believe the Bible. But, but not, you know, the only time I heard about the Holy Spirit was when somebody was baptized in the name of the Father, the, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the only time I ever heard that. But I felt that him come down, hit me in the head, go down deep into my beating, and then flow back out and just explode out of me. And I knew in that instant I would never be the same. I was 20, 25 years old, just about to be 26. I went home. That was a weekend retreat thing I was at. I went home. After about three or four days, Jackie looked at me and said, I like what I see. <laughs> I like the changes. But who are you and what did you do with my husband? <laughs> Two weeks later, she had the same experience. And that's how we started this crazy journey of, of discovering that what we believed was really real. And now, over the last several years, even more, I've had the privilege of, of seeing the power of the gospel in action in some dark places. And I just want to share a few stories with you. Okay? Uh, we started seeing healings, like, immediately. Okay? Um, one of the questions we get asked now when we come back and we have stories of healings is, well, why don't we see that here? Any of you ever asked that? Why don't we see that here? Well, that's probably kind of multi-layered and complex answer, okay? But it starts with this. How many sick people have you prayed for this week? Okay. How many blind people have you prayed for this week? Because... 100%, Josh says this, 100% of the blind people you don't pray for, you will not see healed. <laughs> Somebody else may see them healed, but you won't if you didn't pray for them. But uh, we began seeing healings personally and with other people. Uh, immediately, God was confirming his word. We started seeing deliverances. People, as she said, people, sometimes we didn't even know the people. We'd, we'd get a knock on the, back, on the door of our house at night, and it'd be somebody we didn't know. And they're like, I'm supposed to stop here and you're supposed to pray for me or help me. And we, we honestly didn't have training. We just knew Jesus. And he started delivering people, healing people. So my first uh, kind of mission trip, I was not an early bloomer in mission. My first kind of like mission trip was in 2000, so 22 years ago. I was in my 40s, early 40s. In the slums of Leon, Mexico. Um, sometimes when I had gone on mission trips, I was doing veterinary work, which was good. I loved doing that and walking the hills and the valleys and, you know, taking care of goats and cows and pigs. And wonderful. I, I still love to do that. But uh, on this trip, it was a medical clinic, and I was kind of working more with just evangelism. And so I was out doing the evangelistic thing, and the medical clinic was set up, and we had a... a medical optometrist, I think, like an ophthalmologist, was there. And he was doing eye exams and eyeglasses and, you know, trying to get people fitted and things where he could. So all of a sudden, some people come out to get me, and they said, 
Dr. Goodman wants you to come in and pray for somebody. And at that time, this Dr. Goodman has left his practice and is now a pastor, by the way. But at that time, he was new into anything of the Holy Spirit as well. And uh, he knew I was a little crazier by that time. And so he sent some people to get me because this one lady had come in. Her name was Gabina Zaragoza. Okay, I carried her name with me for years, so I wouldn't forget it. She was in her 70s. She had come led into the clinic by a young lady. I think it was her niece or something because she was completely blind. Gabina was completely blind. She sat down for her exam. Dr. Goodman examined her, and he told me, he said, this lady wants you to pray for her, that uh, she has the worst case of cataracts I've ever seen, and she is completely blind as far as I can tell. And she said, yeah, she couldn't see anything. She was completely blind. And he had done the test and the exams. And so we took her off to just sort of out of the way so he could continue his exams. Same room, but just like in one corner. And I had a couple other guys with me. And I just laid my hands over her eyes, and I just said, in the name of Jesus, be healed. I mean, most of Jesus' healing prayers are like seven words long. Okay? Yeah. Pick up your bed and walk. Okay? Stretch out your hands. I mean, it's not complicated. And... Uh, I took my hand away, and I just said, what do you see? And she was like, I see a little bit of light. And I'm like, eh, okay, maybe, maybe not. That could just be somebody's hope, you know? So I said, can we pray again? Because I remembered the story of Jesus, right? He had to pray for one blind man twice. You remember that? So I thought, well, if Jesus prayed twice, it's okay. <laughs> so I put my hands over her eyes again, and, and I don't remember exactly what I said, but it was simple. In Jesus' name, sight, come, come back took my hand away, and that time she was like, oh, yeah, I can see you. You're, you're all blurry, but I can see you, and I see him, and I see him. Okay, now it's gone beyond her just imagination, right? She's actually pointing to people, but it's still really blurry, and I thought, eh, can we pray a third time? <laughs> I mean, I was kind of new to, to that level of prayer. I never prayed for a blind person before. And I said, okay, let's give it a shot. Prayed one more time. And that time when I removed my hands, she went, ah, like that. Because it hurt. Because it hurt. And then she took her hands slowly away, and there's tears streaming down her face. And she's like, wait over there, wait over there. I can see, I can see. And she gets up, and she starts running around and going to everybody and hugging them. And I had her go back over to Dr. Goodman. And he gave her an eye exam, and she could read the eye chart perfectly with both eyes. Wow. That good? But her backstory was this. About a week before we showed up, she had had a dream. And she said in the dream, Jesus told her that when the missionaries from America came, she could be healed if she had the faith. So when she came to the clinic, and Dr. Goodman said, uh, you'll have to go like to Mexico City for cataract surgery. Cause we were in the slums of Leon. Okay? And that was like telling her to go to the moon. I mean, there was no way she could do that. And she said, no, 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 no. And then she told him the dream. He said, I came to have people pray for me. And that's when he sent for me. That's the backstory. Faith, hunger, belief. Belief enough to act on it. Belief enough to fight for it. 
not to take a negative report from the doctor. Okay? Now, don't, don't take that somewhere. I'm not going with it. Sickness is real. People die every day. But death for a Christian is not defeat. You understand that. But death for a non-Christian is defeat. Okay? So don't take it where I'm not, where I'm not going with it. Okay? But she had the faith to act on it and not to be deterred because somebody said, there's nothing we can do for you. Okay? And she was willing to move forward. More recently, 2016, in the jungles of Honduras, up in the area of the Mayan ruins, okay, where there's still a lot of witchcraft, animistic religion. If you go, if you walk a certain path into the jungle, you'll see two big statues of gods uh, in the shape of frogs. They worship the frog gods and the monkey gods there in particular. It's very, very, uh, has a stronghold still in that region. It's near the border with Guatemala. Copan Ruinas is the village. I was asked uh, if I would go and minister to a young man named Santos that one of the team members had met on a previous trip. And I said, sure, what's his story? This is his story. Um, when he was eight years old, he was a normal kid. Been out in the jungles one day, he came home with... Uh, the black candles and some other artifacts or, or other articles from a, a sacrificial site of the local witch doctor down by the river in the jungle. His family were not Christian. There were very few people there were. But his, it scared his mother, okay? She didn't like the black magic stuff. And so she got very, very afraid, and she just started yelling at him and made him take it all back to wherever he found it. So Santos took it back into the jungle. And then later he came back. But immediately, like within a day or two, his personality began to change. He started becoming very violent. He started where none of this had been true before. He had started failing in his studies. Because even in those remote villages, they have school. He started failing in his studies. He started becoming violent, attacking people, biting people, poking at their eyes, biting them, kicking them. He, he got, uh, by the time he was like nine and a half or ten years old, he, he would run off into the jungle and it would take him two or three days to find him. Okay? So he had become so violent and running off and hiding so often that by the time he was ten years old, they had to tie him in his room with ropes. Okay? And that's where they took care of him. He could no longer go to school. He could no longer interact with people because every time he did, it didn't matter who it was, even to his mother, he started becoming so violent that all she could do was to put a plate of food and pass it, push it to him on the floor with a stick. Okay? When I met him, he was 23 years old. He had been tied up in his room for 13 years. He was naked. He had on a, a ragged T-shirt that came down to about here, undersized ragged T-shirt with holes in it and nothing else because no one could get close to him. Okay? You couldn't bathe him. He had not had a bath in years. He had not had any human contact in years. He could no longer talk. All he could do was grunt. He couldn't have furniture in his room because all he did was make weapons out of it, okay? either against himself or against other people when they would come in the room. Uh, he would crouch, like just kind of like crouch like this on the floor. And he just stared at you with a, a really, I don't know, animal kind of stare. And I ask, because I, it is an area, it's right off the Pan-American Highway, so it's an area where missionaries would frequent. 
and I, I asked, I admit I got angry. And I said, has no one ministered to this child? And they said, oh, yeah, missionaries have come. A pastor, a local pastor has come. And, you know, they helped us build a nicer room for him, which they did. He had like a, a nice hole in metal room for himself that was apparently bigger than his original bedroom where he had been captive. And I said, has no one ever prayed for him? And they, his mother went, And I got angry. And I said, I want to pray for him. And she said, oh, oh, now they're not Christian, are they? She says, okay, but you can't go in the room because he'll attack you. And I said, it's okay. I'm going to go in the room. Now, I, I never met, met a person this demonized. I've seen a lot of deliverances by this point in time. So this was new ground for me, okay? But I believe that what I believe is really real. Okay, this was a challenge. It was a challenge of the enemy in a gate of hell, okay, where there was a stronghold of darkness. So I walked into the room, and I had no idea what I was going to do. Just being honest, no idea. And I said, Jesus, what do I do? How do I minister here? So everybody else stayed at the door way of his room, and I walked in. And all of a sudden, I just, I don't know, I just had a peace about what to do. And I kind of saw a little mental image of what to do. So I just started going, wake up, Santos. Wake up. I'm calling to your spirit to wake up. You are a human being. Wake up. Wake up. Come alive. You're not dead. You're alive. And I just started calling that out. And after, I don't know, a few minutes of that, I just felt a peace. So I stopped. And I began to quietly, just in a very, very soft voice like this, rebuke the different demonic beings that came to my mind that were active in this young man's life. And I don't remember how long that went on. I don't remember how many were addressed. But after, after that time, the, the people at the door, the, it was a small team of five of us and his mother, um, they told me that every time I rebuked an evil spirit, they felt like a cold wind go through them out the door. I didn't feel anything. Okay, You don't have to feel something for the power of God to work. I didn't feel anything when Gabina Zaragoza got her eyesight. But the name of Jesus works. If you believe it enough to try it. So, um, during that time of rebuking the, the, the demons from this man, casting them out, the Holy Spirit had told me that his restoration will come through human contact. And so I began to inch closer to Santos. And his mother starts screaming. He's going to bite you. He's going to kick you. He's going to poke your eyes out. And finally, I, I just had to look around at her. And my Spanish was not good then, and I, so I did it through a translator. But I said, it's okay. I've been bitten and kicked before. And as a veterinarian, I have many times. <laughs> okay? <laughs> yeah. And I have the scars I can show you. I'm not afraid of being hit. And so I just continued to inch up toward him. And every time I'd get close, he would move away. Okay? And this went on for 20, 30 minutes. I would get close to him, and he would scoot away. But he wasn't attacking me. And finally, I put my hand on his shoulder, and he stayed. And so I slowly began to just massage his shoulders from behind. And he relaxed. And after being in the room for about an hour and a half, 
he stood up beside of me. He laid his head over on my shoulder, and he just melted. And I knew then that Jesus had delivered him. It was dark. It was after dark. We were in the jungle. We had to leave. <laughs> so we gave a few instructions to the family, and we left. My intention, I was supposed to be back there six months later. Life happened. We were in Honduras, but the transmission on our van went out as we were going across mountains in a different direction. So I never got back to Copan Ruinas. And I could not get a report. I, I called everybody that I knew that I thought knew him. And for some reason, nobody had been to check on me. Even, even my man in Honduras, my contact. And did that, that made me a little angry too, I'll be honest. Like, how can he... Some, there is such a thing as a righteous anger that gives you an energy to do something that you would not do without that. Jesus turned over the, the tables of the money changers out of a righteous anger. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that don't use that as an excuse just for your own anger. Okay? But there is a place for a, an energy that comes with a, from a righteous anger that motivates you to act. So... Um, the next time I could get there was a year later. I had not heard a word, and I was very apprehensive. But we go back, walk down a little trail to their house, and the atmosphere is totally different. His mother is a spirit-filled Christian. His brother is a spirit-filled Christian. They have um, Bible verses up on their walls of their, of their little humble home. His, his brother is sitting there reading the Bible when I walked in the room. And I, I talked to them a minute, and then they said, where's Santos? And they said, oh, he's in his room. And my heart sank because I'm remembering what I saw the year before. And I said, can I go see him? I said, yes, of course. So I went in the room, and what I see is completely different. He's dressed. He's clean. He's gained 20, 30 pounds. He's talking. Okay? He's, he's, like, he's still kind of socially awkward and not real comfortable with people being too close. But he, he's reading. He's talking. He's everything. And I just start crying. And I, I didn't realize how heavy a burden I'd been carrying until I saw. Yeah, I did. I'd prayed for him every day during that year. And I turned around to his mother and I said, when did you untie? And she said, oh, the day after you were here a year ago. We said it was such a change in him that we untied him and we, gave, we bathed him and we clipped his nails because his nails were out and all curled up. We, we trimmed his nails and we bathed him and we, we could start eating with him. And he's just been improving ever since. And my other son here goes in and reads the Bible to him about four or five days a week. Come on. <laughs> Come on. And uh, a, a six months after that, I'm in Mexico, and I get a, a, a photo sent to me by email. And it's from a man in Honduras. And he had met Santos out in the village working a normal job completely restored. That's the power of the gospel. The gates of hell cannot stand up to the authority of the name of Jesus Christ. 
and the belief and the revelation that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the key to the kingdom. That our words, God's words in our mouths, are God's words. God's word out of God's mouth is powerful, yes? God's word out of your mouth is just as powerful. That's the power of the gospel. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Preach the good news, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. It's all based on that. Do you believe that what you believe is really real? Tell you one other quick story. This this goes back to the Bible Institute in, in Nambali, Kenya, that we helped to, to start and open. Uh, the first piece of ground that was was purchased was one acre in a swamp. The lower half was swamp. The upper half was barely not swamp. And a, a group of local started gathering under a mango tree with their Kenyan leader for a Bible study. A year later, we were able to build a, um, a, a little chapel on that ground. And then we began, because we saw the need, how can we, we've just been praying for wisdom and strategy, how can we impact this area with the gospel? That area of Kenya is known as the witchcraft capital of East Africa. It, there was not a single accredited Bible institute in all of Western Kenya. It sits near the borders with Uganda and South Sudan. Um, the Lord had given us this vision of, of, of starting a Bible institute and working through the accreditation process, which is normally about a 10-year process in Kenya. So we, we had begun that process, and we had started building dormitories, classrooms, other things. Uh, so we're into about the fourth year of that at, at this time of the story. The person, our closest neighbor on the back side was a local witch doctor. If you've never dealt with witch doctors, it's very real. They have a high standing in the community. They're often some of the wealthiest people in their community because everybody goes to them and pays them for blessings, to put curses on other people, for healing, for prosperity, for a good crop, they go to the witch doctor and pay them to get these kind of spiritual blessings. Okay? So it's, it's very common, it's very real. So when the true gospel comes into an area like that, it threatens their position. Now, we do not threaten them as people. Our battle's not against flesh and blood, right? Ever. Whether it's here, it's not against a political party, it's not against a person. Our battle is against the powers of darkness, the rulers of darkness in heavenly places. So we had reached out in different ways to this man many times through our director in, in Kenya, trying to draw him into the good news. But he just got harder and harder and harder. So he had sent, uh, twice they'd tried to poison Peter, our, our Kenyan director. Um, he had, three times he had sent, as, as Peter would call him, a group of hooligans with machetes and clubs and rocks to kill him or run him off. They had never succeeded. 
Peter was uh, always, he told me once, he said, Brother, I don't know what came over me. This group of 20 came with their machetes outside the gate, and they were going to break in and kill me. And he said, something rose up within me. And I just said, you will not come in this gate. This is the Lord's place, and you will go home, and you will drop your weapons. And he said, they dropped their weapons, and they went home. <laughs> and I told him, Peter, it's probably because they could see all the angels around you, you know. But uh, so that's kind of the, the, the backdrop. They had threatened to kill us the next time we came. Um, anyway, as we were expanding, buying property from neighbors for the right, you know, the fair market price, the right price, that they basically the neighbors named their price, and we expanded our fence, the witch doctor thought he saw an opportunity to run us off. And so he brought a lawsuit in the courts against us that uh, we had closed off a public road with our expansion. And none of it was true. We had bought the right away. It was all private property. We had built the road. We had built the bridge. Prior to th these people had lived there for you know, decades, and there had never been a bridge there, only the one that we built coming straight into our property across the little river there. But anyway, that was his claim. They shut off a public road, and, and so you know, they, they, have to, they have to go. They can't stay. And he brought a, a legal suit against us. In courts like that in a foreign land, you, you have no standing as a foreigner. You just don't. Now, Peter is Kenyan, our, our leader there. And so you know he went to court for us. We paid a little bit and hired a lawyer to, to go with him. But anyway, they made their case. The witch doctor and his, he, he stirred up three neighbors to, to join him. The judge listened to it. He took it all under consideration, and he ruled this. Your, your lawsuit is frivolous. It has no merit, so I'm dismissing it. And not only that, but what they are doing in this community is so important for the development of this community that we are exercising what we would call eminent domain, and you are going to have to sell them your property so they can get the, the, the land that they need for their future expansion. We will send out court appraisers to establish the price, and once they pay you, you have three months to leave. <laughs> and all we did was just state the truth. Okay. God will fight your battles. Okay. It works. The gospel works. I could go on with many stories, but I'm going to stop there. But I just want to challenge you. This power that brings inner healing and inner transformation is exactly the same power that breaks down the gates of hell around you. But that battle has to start with the evil within you. Okay? We met many people on the mission field, many, many people that I believe have good intentions. But because of their whatever, their own things they're dealing with, they are trying to find their significance in the outward ministry, but they've never allowed the Holy Spirit to do the inward work. You were created to carry the glory of God in your inner man. And then out of that overflow, you tear down the gates of hell around you. Okay? But that's how it works. Now, the name of Jesus works. Uh, you know, if anybody anywhere, you don't, anybody anywhere that believes that and is willing to act on it, you'll see it's true. You'll see it in healings, you'll see it in salvations, you'll see it in deliverances, you'll see it in circumstances shifting, atmosphere shifting. 
but it's a battle, okay? And your, your success is not measured in terms of numbers or what you see change circumstantially. Your success has to be measured by one thing, and that is your obedience. That's how you measure success as a Christian. Are you obedient to what the Lord tells you to do? Because we all, I mean, we're human. We want to see the walls fall down, and we want to see everybody delivered and, and, you know, thousands of people saved. And sometimes you get to do that. But you're also only interacting with that people in that environment for a short period of time. Even if you stay there for 20 years, it's a short period of time. You don't know the end of the story for the people that you're influencing and for the communities and the cities and the nations that you're interceding for. You don't know the end of the story. We're one tiny piece of a huge mosaic. Our success has to be measured by our obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's it. And so as we close, I just want to offer a, um, if you want prayer, we'll pray for you. If you want something more, if you want the, the Lord to just take you to a place you've not gone before, and I don't care how long you've been a Christian, how long you've been spirit-filled, there's always a place beyond where you've gone. Okay. If you want him to touch you in some way, just come up and we'll pray for you. Maybe we could stream a little music or something, if we can do that. Okay, Cameron, let me turn this to you. We will, we will pray. Yeah. <clears throat> so, you know, it's great when missionaries like this come and tell stories. Um, and it is appropriate that we get encouraged and challenged by that i just really want you to understand every one of us knows a santos all right the ropes may not be literal ropes they may not be tied in a, a dirt floored room but they're tied up in addiction they're tied up in uh you know pornography or in a inappropriate, unhealthy sexual lifestyle. They're tied up um, uh, for a lust of money or power. They're tied up in addictions. Maybe they're tied up in depression. Uh, Self-loathing is epidemic. Some people that you know that may seem like they're all together inside, their, their, their spirits are cancerous. Guys, we have the word of life. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, like Don said, when he saw that man, and I've heard this story before, I was going to actually ask you to tell that story because it's so challenging. Um, and I've been in situations where I've seen people, and the initial reaction is, I don't want to go there. Like, I want to run away. Like, God sends somebody else. But you have to step into it. And you have to step into you know, someone that's bound up in a false ideology that may be repulsive to you, that you may be angry or upset about, but you need to see them as a person that's tied up, a person that has been cut off from the love of the Father. And you need to be Jesus to them. You are the body of Christ. And so the purpose of having this weekend is so that not just so you could hear stories, but that you can get an impartation so that you can be the person that, that very slowly, prayerfully inches closer 
for the people that are tied up in your life. You can be set free, but you can also be set free to set others free. All right? And church, we need this, and our community needs this. And as you're faithful in responding to those around you, God will take you on great adventures. Trust God to do that. All right? But you need to be faithful in the now uh, and be obedient. So, yeah, if you guys are willing to pray, who wants to, who wants to get an impartation? prayer. All right, so Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, that we thank you for Donna and Jackie. We thank you for their what they've shared. But most of all, we thank you for you, Holy Spirit, that you are readily available to each and every one. That, that each everyone here is pre-qualified by the blood of Jesus to receive Holy Spirit. And God wants to do more through you than you can imagine. And all you have to do is be willing. 